Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, we are back in full effect in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. Uh, another podcast we just going back to back running them today and it is freezing but the sun is out so that's a good thing and speaking of the sun out i got somebody that's connected to one of my brother like my brother for real like people say my brother jonathan is connected to chris shorter my brother yes, so sir. jonathan how you feeling i'm feeling great yes sir feeling yes great. sir yeah. all right so this has been a long time in the coming so I probably for like three years, I've been like, I need you on Detroit is different. I need you on Detroit is different. And we've been missing paths and everything like that. But you have such a dynamic story tying to business, entrepreneurship, consulting, politics, academia. It, it just mixes up. And now like family man in the mix of that. So um, let's start with Detroit, Detroit and you and, and what connected you, your family to the city of Detroit. So I'll say this. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I moved here in like 2005. Um, and what brought me to Detroit was working with the former mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was one of the best decisions I've ever made, um, working for a brother that actually um, was really for the people. Um, I learned a lot about government. At that point, I thought I wanted to be an elected official, potentially a mayor of Flint. Mm-hmm. Um, and after seeing um, that and understanding, or I guess overstanding, that um, politics is, is a... It's, it's a calling and not an aspiration. I had an aspiration. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was a great experience, but I, you know, I think that I'm well-suited and can do more and impact the community more as a, a private citizen and entrepreneur. Okay, so you're talking about that relationship, uh, Flint and Detroit. And it's definitely like cousin cities. Uh, I always say, like, when I go places, I say, Akron is the Flint of Cleveland. I say Gary is the Flint of Chicago, yep. you know, and people be like, what that mean? And it's like, eh, you got to be from here to understand it. So what was, and it's weird, it's like Saginaw is the Flint of Flint. <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> so so what, what was your family saying when it was like, yeah, I'm about to, I'm about to go down to Detroit. What was your family's take? Well, my mom and dad was very happy because this was, when I moved, when I, when I graduated from high school, I went to school at Florida A&M University, mm-hmm. um, the university. Um, I never had plans of coming back to Michigan. Um, I never liked the winter here. Um, I didn't really see that there was a lot of opportunity for a person like me who's very curious and kind of out of the box and a disruptor. And so, you know, I was happy with just like being in a nice sun in Florida and kind of enjoying the world and travels and things like that. But Mm -hmm. um, my parents were happy because as I was coming, my my middle brother was moving out to Texas. So they at least had one of their sons, the baby here. Uh And so I was able to, you know, it's an hour drive 45 minutes when I'm driving uh, to Flint. So I'm able to see my parents more often. So that they were excited about that. Okay. And then Flint has this own culture where it feels it it's, it's different than like, as much as I say Detroit is different. It Flint is definitely different itself too. Even though some of my favorite uh, childhood, like cultural heroes and Andre rising and MC yeah. Bree oh, yeah. came from Flint, you know, um, w- what was it like growing up there and visiting Detroit then? Or what were you hearing about Detroit? And then the relationship, everybody got cousins in Flint. You know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And everybody have cousins in Detroit. Especially. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was great. So I knew so like those you know, brothers, uh, Andre Rise and the MC Breed. I, I literally grew up around the corner from MC Breed. Um, my, my oldest brother was best friends with Eric. And um, Andre Rise was somebody I looked up to. I mean, he was the man, you know. Um, 
and you know the moon <laughs> i mean yeah I, for most people i was looking at the left eye documentary with yeah. him the other day and i'm like man i was forgetting all of the de- i was forgetting all the details he was connected with Pac like that <laughs> he was he was yeah that was great growing up in flint um as as you know very young i remember the transition of when flint at least in my during my my in my neighborhood specifically where it went from good to to bad mm. and so growing up i grew up um on, on my block there was you know, senior citizens. There were um, there were actually black and white people on my block. Everybody owned their homes. Um, it was pretty safe. And this was like up until probably third or fourth grade. Mm. Um, and then when GM started um, laying off in Buick City, um, eventually closed down. Uh, you start seeing the jobs leaving, people moving out. Um, and then you had renters coming in, and renters mm. basically treated it started. I mean, I noticed that there was now drug houses on my on my block. Um, but then during the time. I actually was in a gang and most people don't understand that I was in a gang when I was younger um, and it was just it wasn't because I was like super like fascinated with gangs it was just I needed that for protection I walked to I had to walk to the bus stop every day which was about a 19 minute walk and so in the midst of that I needed protection I used to like fighting but I couldn't fight when I was crossing over in different turfs and things like that and it was it was the culture everybody that I grew up with all of my boys were all part of gangs most people sold drugs I had fortunately I had a father in the home and my dad was a thing. He's my hero, but my dad saved me from a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of things that I, I definitely regret growing up. Mm-hmm. But one thing I didn't do is drugs. And fortunately, I wasn't, you know, I never got caught for some of the stuff I used to do from stealing and things like mm-hmm. that. But, um, yeah, that was a culture in, in Flint. Um, we always we, we always had this pride about us, like very prideful. Um, you know, where we come from, we thought Flint was like the best thing ever. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to Florida where I was like, man, like Flint didn't have much. Like it's yeah. like a country. <laughs> and and it, to understand and like get the perspective of what 90s Flint was like for a lot of us yeah. around the culture. Uh, the one name that comes to life is Top Authority. Oh, yeah. People yeah. don't talk about this rap group Top Authority anymore. A lot of people talk about the Dayton family. Yep. But Top Authority was like it was like a pervasive like you know like even down here it's like somebody was listening to top authority it's like oh lord jesus yeah yeah please don't let me get in no problems with these kids yeah you know so like uh uh, uh a tough manly culture you yep. know on other documentaries if you if you watch like anything on the flintstones the the michigan state basketball team they talk about the camaraderie yep and it was like a mix of toughness mm-hmm. and then also a mix of a mix of like just dealing in that chaos of scarcity yep. uh, and, and what that can be in a community uh, yep. as we touched on Andre rising. It's like, man, you know, it's, you know, the day he's the day before he's drafted, it's a shootout, like right in front of yep. his house. Yep. And that's, that was regular. I mean, I honestly, I remember going to sleep at night, hearing gunshots every night. Mm-hmm. I mean, up until my parents moved out of the city and this was about, this was right before the Flint water crisis. My, my mom and dad lived in the house that we were born and raised in. It was to a point where when I went to college, I would never come back and stay with my parents. I would get a hotel room. I just didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. It was to a point where my parents, my parents had to put like bars on their windows. And it was like I wasn't used to that growing up. Yeah. You know, because I knew everybody in the hood. Like I literally was connected to everyone. And, yeah. then, you know, my mom got um, um, at gunpoint, a guy came and tried to rob her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the last draw. And I was like, OK, y'all got to go. Um, mm-hmm. But no, it was it was it was amazing community growing up because, like I said, we all knew each other. We all looked out for each other. I mean, I saw my best friend get murdered when I was 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you some stories about yeah. Flint. And one thing I love so much about Flint is that we like I said, we didn't have a lot of 
you know, businesses and a lot of fun things to do. We made our own fun, but the people, the, the community has always been just solid. If you yeah. know somebody from Flint, they solid. They're, yeah. um, they're, they're a man and a woman of their word for the most part. We're not shady. Um, and, and, and we keep it a hundred percent. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and it will be, they will be partying all night if you uh, oh, yeah. attend a night affair oh, yeah. in Flint. Uh, shout out to Kay that keeps the comedy and a lot of the uh, entertainment going there. Yep. Uh, and that culture coming down to Detroit, because I know you all were always traveling down 75. Definitely. What was it like traveling down 75? Yeah. So I didn't start until maybe high school, you know, mm -hmm. and I would go to the, we would always go to the River Rock. Ah, so, the rock. Yeah. Ah. So we were like, literally, that was the only place that we, me and my boys in high school, we would, we, we knew of. So we would mm -hmm. party in Pontiac. Um, and we knew a lot of places in Pontiac, but we, when we really wanted to like do it, like on a Friday or Saturday, yep. we get in the car, drive down to the River Rock and, uh, you know, hope we can get in. Cause I mean, I think we had to have fake IDs. I can't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we, there was sometimes it was like, like 18 and under. I, I can't remember. Sometimes 18, 18 and up, I think 18. was Friday and then 21 and up yeah. was Saturday or whatever. Yeah. But no, it was a lot of fun. It was like, mm -hmm. that was us. I mean, we, we used to say, oh, we going to the city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we was like, we okay. going to the big city and we go to Detroit. It's like, oh man, we got to come with our fresh gear. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was, it was, it was fun. And, you know. Okay. So like that culture and then kind of touching base in Detroit uh, was somewhat of an introduction. Yeah. Then you go to FAMU. Yep. Uh, and you, you spoke of Mayor Kilpatrick yep. and what he represented. But it, along with Mayor Kilpatrick, people like, uh, you know, right now, uh, assistant city manager, I spoke, my brother, Chris Shorter, oh, uh, yeah. right yeah. from this neighborhood, like yeah. Central High School, like real Central High School, not yep. like Central for a semester or whatever, mm -hmm. or Central Neighborhood, real Central High School, city manager, Austin, yep. Austin, Texas, uh, huge metropolis. Oh, yeah. People such as yourself. Fam, you had a Detroit culture that oh. existed and still exists to this day. No question. I Almost mean, like a fraternity. Oh, yeah. I mean, so Chris, so let me let me touch on Chris. And then I also want to talk about the culture that Detroit had in, at FAMU. Chris was one of the first people I met my freshman year. And wow. I wasn't actually interested. Chris Shorter is an alpha, um, beta, new alpha specifically. Um, I wasn't interested in alpha. I wanted to be an omega because my dad's an omega. Mm -hmm. um, but when I went down there, I've never met alphas like the brothers of Beta Nu before in my life. Mm -hmm. And I met Chris actually on a freshman visit or I'm sorry, I was still in high school. It was a college visit. Uh -huh. Met him. He brought me in. And, you know, he was this guy who was just like, man, he's he was kind of scary. Like he's like, yeah, he's very even to the he's he's has a, like an intimidating presence. Yeah, so that he'll laugh. But it's still like intimidating. I yep. feel for his sons. It's like, <laughs> damn, it's like that's a different type of guy. Like, did you clean your room? It's exactly. Like, oh, yep. <laughs> no, nah, but you know, he took and, and that's one of the things I love. And fam, you uh -huh. it's um, our motto is excellence with caring. Mm -hmm. um, and so everyone kind of just like wrapped me like I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends or family yeah. in, at Florida. But I remember my first two weeks of school. I remember calling my parents. I was like, I love this. I wow. feel at home. Wow. People like grabbed me. Was like, oh, you need a ride to the Walmart. To Walmart, you need to pick up something. I got you. You need food. I got you. So. I started seeing that and beautiful black and brown people from all over the world, which most people don't understand when it comes to HBCUs. People think, oh, it's not diverse. HBCUs is very diverse. HBCUs, I had in my home alone, I was in a scholarship house. I had people, I had a black, I had somebody from England, um, Haiti, Trinidad, California, Chicago, Louisiana, um, Jamaica, um, and a few other places, but that alone, we just mm -hmm. all shared the same, uh, you know, skin color, but we all were from different places, different cultures, some mm -hmm. from economic, social economic yeah. differences. Um, but then like the Detroit culture, let me not forget, 
Detroit was doing things that no other city was doing, not even mm-hmm. Chicago. Like we used to compete with Chicago a lot. So like the Chicago club and the Michigan club. But yeah. Detroiters had people like my, my sister, Arian Reed, who, who opened up um, a store in the mall, in the main mall, while she was still in college. Wow. Tommy Duncan, who now is like killing it. You know, yeah. he just sold uh, his healthcare company. Mm-hmm. But he had two, two, actually three. It was called Tommy D's. It was a shish kebab place. He had one in the airport. <laughs> this Now, keep in mind, he's still in school. Yeah. He had um, one in the airport. He had one on, like, Florida State's campus. Um, and then he had another location. Um, but he was doing all of this while he was in B school with us. Wow. And we had another cat, um, uh, Melvin. Um, Melvin... <laughs> Melvin had all these different hustles. If you needed anything, Melvin mm-hmm. was the hookup man, literally. Mm-hmm. Like I had fake IDs and everything, but we, everybody, the way that we hustled, the way we moved in, in the Detroiters, they were doing boss moves in college yeah. while still getting the education and getting on, um, on the dean's list and honors and mm-hmm. things like that. And that that kind of uh, carries over yep. to Chris's ways and management. Like I, I sometimes always pick up different ideas about how he approaches things. Yep. But a lot of those organizational skills were that, you know, you know, steel sharpening steel, like, like iron on iron, like, you know, hard press, real talk about like, yo, that that didn't work. That's horrible. Yeah. People will not respond to that. Yep. Like almost hard critique where you like, damn. And from an operation standpoint, because I worked with Chris, uh, we've actually we were part of a few organizations together outside of Alpha. But I got a chance to see how he works and how he thinks. I mean, this guy is like a brilliant operator. Mm-hmm. Um, he I think he's the world's best COO for any company, any mm-hmm. city. And, I, you know, when he got that promotion to City of Austin, I wasn't like surprised. I mean, mm-hmm. what he was doing in D.C. was game changing. I mean, the mayor sure. understood how important and how valuable it was when he was he was like really just like killing it um but chris is an amazing person i love chris um i got a chance to stay with him um you know he was um living in dc i haven't been able to visit him yet in austin because i just haven't been mm-hmm. um but he's keep you know he keeps asking me when are you gonna come in and, and check him out in austin mm-hmm. so i'm looking forward to doing that i, I am too i am too and, and i know like this uh you know soon will be south by southwest where a lot of people are gonna be in austin yep. and that's like right in some of his wheel alley yeah uh, right up his alley and you talk about Mary Kilpatrick mm-hmm. and Mary Kilpatrick's uh, Mary Kilpatrick's office because you work right there. What yep. was it like? What was the culture? Man, it was it was the best job I ever had because for me, it was where I first realized that it's not just about a job and it's not just about money. Um, I took a pay cut to come here, um, but I I actually liked working with everybody who I work with. We. And see, this hopefully history talks about this. Right now, it's not, you know, and and, and there's a lot of different reasons why I think it is. Um, but you know, in the midst of you know, Kwame Kilpatrick made some personal mistakes. What he didn't do um, is um, bring make the city go into bankruptcy. Like a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff that you're hearing now, most people don't even never even met Kwame, and like people have such divisive and very like strong it, yeah. opinions about Mayor Kilpatrick. And never met him. Yeah. Never met him at all. Like yeah. I was with him every day. I was one of his senior advisors. So I literally from seven in the morning to about 11 o'clock at night, I was with him every meeting, every community meeting and saw how hard he worked. So people try to like minimize and say, oh, he was a great speaker. Yeah, he was that. But he also was very intellectual. The brother was like sharp. I used to write some of his speeches, his talking points. He would look at some. He had a photographic memory. So he'll look at a two or three page document, memorize it, get up on the stage and just kill it. 
Kwame had, I mean, he was so talented. I mean, I learned so much about that brother and um, I love him. And I hope that, you know, the president um, pardoned him, pardoned him. Um, you know, his sons were like my little brothers. I mean, actually, one of them um, is at FAMU right now. Mm. Um, the, one, of the, uh, one of the twins are at FAMU, so I'm wow. excited about that. But all of them are now in college. Um, mm. Two of them, in, actually, all three of them are in HBCUs. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about that. But, I mean, what he's done, what he, what he was able to do in the community, um, he, the, the next Detroit Neighborhood Initiative, that was, mm. that's the only comprehensive neighborhood initiative that ever any mayor has ever accomplished. Um, and, and anybody that know, was around during that time, they saw how, how excessive he was to the community, um, how hard he worked. Yeah. Um, and so, again, they minimize it by his mistakes. As all we we all have mistakes, you know. I'm not a perfect person, and I don't think anybody, whoever criticized yeah. Kwame Kilpatrick, and I always defend him because I love him. Um, with whether he makes mistakes or doesn't, um, I'm I'm a loyal person, and um, you know, I just wish he, he and his family the best. Yeah, and it was such a unique time because the attack on his character was really an attack on young black men. No question. Throughout the region. Yep. You know, like uh, like soon after, I remember when charges were being filed. Uh, mm -hmm. At the time, uh, Tupac Hunter put in the, the amendment where it's like, oh, if you face, you know, if you were incarcerated while in office, then that means that you have to wait another 25 years. And I was like, man, that's yeah. a Mayor Kilpatrick law if it ever was one, yep. because they know that he would get out of jail. Yep. Like, even to this day, I think if he were to get on the next mayoral ballot of mm -hmm. Detroit, Detroiters will still support him. I and mean, that's a hard... That's a hard truth for, I think, a lot of people outside the city of Detroit that have other right. interests in mind yep. of what Detroit leadership should look like and feel like, yep. especially right now. And this is just a Kari Frazier opinion, not even necessarily a Detroit is different opinion, mm -hmm. but a lot of what Mayor Kilpatrick was um, was accused of and, and, and faced almost times five or the current executive administration is completely like wow like i can't some of this stuff i'm seeing is like wow seriously it's become a norm and a standard um and so people kind of don't i don't think people even say wow anymore mm -hmm. um it's just it's really disappointing and again it's as, as an entrepreneur um you know i love that i don't have to be beholding to anyone yeah. and i don't have i can speak my truth yeah. um and be liberated in my thought yeah. um, my thoughts and in my perspectives um, but yeah, it's, it's really disappointing when you see um, African-American men and women yeah. um, that are being demonized for just trying to um, protect their community, serve their community and empower their community. Cause that's what that's what Kwame Kilpatrick was mm -hmm. about. And uh, that's what he's still he's still about. Um, but that that was that was scary for a lot of these business people. Um, and they're afraid of that. They're afraid. He mm -hmm. he made sure that it was equity as it relates to African-Americans. Yeah. Um, and you know, he, he also had a strong sense of self, so he wasn't holding or trying to be something laughing with was, wasn't funny and scratching with wasn't itching. Yeah. Um, he was very conscious yeah. and that's scary when you, when you have African-American people who are conscious and understand the beauty and the intellect and the, 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 the power that we possess, what was in our DNA coming from Kings and Queens from back yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Um, or actually even here because we were here before anybody else in, yeah, in America, true. um, that kind of truthful, like honesty, and I'm, you know, for me and with my daughters, I'm talking about that all the time. I'm telling them how beautiful they are, how smart they are, and they don't have to impress anyone but themselves. They come from a lineage of like greatness, and so it, it's in them. It's just for them to possess it and for them to like show the world and never be ashamed of it. Okay, and now we're getting into more of your personal journey. Sure. Where did you move to when you moved here uh, in '05? 
Uh, so when I first moved here, I, like I said, I didn't know anyone here. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, do I like live with my parents and drive back and forth? I was fortunate mm -hmm. to find a place. And this was funny because I was living in D.C. and L.A. before I came here. And um, these uh, Merchants Row was that where I first moved. And so mm -hmm. it was like these new builds at the time right on Woodward. And I remember it was like $1,400 a, um, a month. For okay. Rent. And right on Woodward and where at? Merchants Row is... Um, it's right above the it used to be called the breakfast house. Remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it's now Hudson Cafe. Okay. So right where the uh the Woodhouse Spa is yep. and yep. okay, so like for me, uh it would be like the Nike outlet, yeah, the, the Under yeah. Armour outlet. Yep. So that was like just redesigned. I think Mark England may have been in there. Yeah, Mark England was, yeah, yeah. Okay. And shout out to okay, he he passed, but mm -hmm. it was a fashion designer, yep. a world renowned fashion designer that came back and put a store right there and he would, he would tailor a suit for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. For I almost as much as you buy, a, 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 what I guess a decent suit. I guess you can argue whatever. Right. A decent suit from any other place. But exactly. Mark England was tailoring suits mm -hmm. in the shop. That that was just astonishing. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that culture. I mean, it was it was great. I mean, although it wasn't a lot of stuff downtown at the moment, because we talked about the Woodward, uh -huh. I used to eat there every day. You know, uh -huh. I was, you know, this bachelor that came, you know, I didn't know a lot of people. So I would meet a lot of people. I met, you know, well, I knew Joey Cartwright because he actually used to work yeah. with uh, Tommy in, in, Tall in Tallahassee. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. So when, you know, I would go there, eat dinner every day. I mean, uh -huh. I was a regular, okay. but, you know, the parties and just and that was for me getting an opportunity to meet other young people because I worked a lot. I was uh -huh. always with the mayor. And it also, I guess one of the things that I love so much about working with the mayor is that it gave me the opportunity to really understand community here. Because mm -hmm. I'm not from here, yeah. I never understood why East Siders and West Siders never really crossed and, and yeah. knew each other or, the, you know, because for me, I just didn't know. I mean, I'm from Flint, but I got a chance to go to community meetings from literally all over Detroit and meet like the community leaders, really understand what the real um, pride and, and heart of Detroit was really all about real hand. Um, and I'm grateful for that because I wouldn't if I would have came here and just work, I would have stayed in my comfort zone, zone went to work. Hung out with the people. really understood the yeah. context. Or you'd have just connected with your interests. Exactly. So like partying when you're younger yep. and then you get older and have kids. Yep. Uh, pay after school activities, you yep. know, you go from the party to the playground. Exactly. Or, or, you know, whatever, you know, the basketball field, baseball field, you know, whatever. Yep. So um, by touching this, as you talk about, like, uh, that's the first place you live. How long did you stay there? So I was there for, I think I was there for like four or six months. Um, but then I was like. Man, I mean, I can actually buy a house for what I'm paying for this one bedroom. And so yeah. I ended up moving to, um, it's funny, it's called West Village now. Um, it, I don't know if it was called West Village back then, but um, right outside the Indian Village. And that's uh, that's one of the things that they say, because I've heard that too. I thought the same thing. And they mm -hmm. said, it was always called that. We just never promoted it. I'm like, I always thought this was like next to Indian. <laughs> that's yeah, what I call it, yeah, next yeah. to Indian Village. Yep, so yep. you bought a home over there. What, I did. What street? Um, so it was on Leach. Not like one of those huge houses on Burns. No, it was a new build. So it was okay. at the time it was a new build. Um, it's, it's, yeah, um, it was it was a new build, and so I, I actually bought it right before the recession. So I bought, wow. I paid more than what I should have paid for it, uh -huh. but I didn't know. You know, uh -huh. I just knew it was cheap compared to where I used to live in okay. D.C. and L.A. I couldn't afford to buy anything yeah, in D.C. It, it was LA. like a new reality for yeah. you to even think. One second, you you know, because you were used to L.A. D. culture, a D.C. culture. It was like mm -hmm. apartment. 
Yeah. You know? And I mean, I ended up buying other, like, I, I wish I would have been smart enough, um, but I, I bought another house um, in Indian Village for $150,000. Mm. Um, I mean, a huge mansion for one hundred and fifty, which I thought was crazy. Uh-huh. Um, and then rented that out because it didn't need much work. Um, and I wish I would have bought more. I just uh-huh. didn't know. I mean, I was 24, 25 or something like that at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, but it, it was, um, so I lived there. And then from there, I um, bought a place downtown. Um, right across from where LCA is. And so okay. got a couple of units there now, but I mean, I didn't know that LCA was going to be there. Like this when was like, it. yeah, this was around, around the time of recession, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a good investment. I wish I would have bought more because it was a lot of empty units over there yeah, that was yeah. going for like $60,000. Yeah. So like yeah. the vision of, of what's to come next mm-hmm. and, and, and how this grows and just getting into like some property buying and you're still young. Mm-hmm. Um, did you kind of like connect with those different communities? Any like, let's just even talk about West Village, because mm-hmm. then that was a whole different feel. Like it, it was. Vegan Soul wasn't there. Yep. Uh, you know, it you know, it wasn't yeah. Live Cycle Life wasn't there. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't really have community. I mean. I used to just do everything downtown. I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't I don't, there wasn't anything over there like besides. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know a lot of the neighbors were like older. Yep. And so we just didn't connect. I used to party a lot. I used to throw parties in my house all the time. I had a huge basement mm-hmm. with like uh, I think uh, eleven foot like ceilings in my basement. So uh-huh. I, we, we, me and a friend of mine, um, Heidi Atu, <laughs> we uh-huh. used to like throw parties, and it was like we would party all night, and then we'll come. The after party would be at our place, and it was it was a great. And then I would wake up the next morning with a with a hangover. Um, Bachelor life, and then start working uh, for for you know going to the Manuga Mansion to get ready mm-hmm. to to roll with the mayor. So I guess that was at least close to to where you needed to go though. It was literally like a two minute drive. Yeah, you could w- walking you could distance walk for real. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, um, so that is happening and so much has changed in almost every spot you chose to live mm-hmm. are now um, coveted, coveted, coveted places for property. Yep. Um, you know, I know you got to look at that. Do you think that the the current residents still had the opportunity to 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 be present? Like what what's your take on like some of these changes that have taken place? I mean, a lot of the changes have taken place without the residents really even knowing. I mean, I mean, it's, I remember at one point I was like, I want to do some investment where it's now called Island View, which is another name that yeah. I don't ever recall. I'm like, when did it become Island View? Yeah. Um, and I remember riding around trying to find like land that I can buy, like corner lots in particular. Yeah. And this was like five or six years ago. And I just remember seeing all of the corner lots like bought. Mm. And then you start seeing Mac being repaved like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I'm like, something's happening because uh-huh. like from Mac, I mean, the whole Mac strip is, has been yes. repaved. Yeah. And so you can see what's going on now. And um, it's really becoming more of a gateway to connect Gross Point yep. to the city, like yep. almost like Gross Point to downtown. Like that is yep. one of going to become more of a thoroughfare as definitely almost where I guess what what Jefferson and Gratiot because Mac is act more of an artery to connect from sure. from Gross Point without you know going down the uh yeah. you know off the river and everything yep so yep. It, it yeah it, I no one would ever think that Gross Point would want to connect with Detroit yeah but now things are changing yeah. yeah I mean I think a lot in Gross Point a lot of the folks are start with a lot but they're they're still Gross Point is still old Gross Point in in some ways um and so a lot of them don't want that change they want to keep you know those invisible uh fence 
you know, yeah, around and surrounding. Mean, and in reality, not just invisible fence. I mean, it's actually concrete blockades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That blocked some of that. And it's interesting. So I live in Gross Point now, and mm-hmm. I never knew. Like again, I'm not from Detroit. So I didn't under. I didn't know the the history the of. history of it until yeah. i got there and i was just like oh you know yeah i didn't realize that you know like jews and, and blacks were not quote unquote welcome no. um and so you know you still see some of that i mean I, I fortunately haven't had any issues um but i'm very much so um i'm very much aware aware mm-hmm. um and then i'm also like i said with my daughters very much so keeping them conscious and making sure like they understand that you know don't ever forget that you're still black mm-hmm and yeah. so always be aware of that and be proud and be and for me like i don't ever acquiesce to i don't what i don't care what community i'm in but i'm always gonna be jq from flint mm-hmm. and proud to be black yeah. um you know i don't switch up you know people switch up based upon the communities that they're in i mean if you don't like who i am then you know i don't honestly i don't really care <laughs> and, and very much so very yeah. much so i mean when we think about uh even connecting for this interview it's mm-hmm. through my father who's yep. been a dac member since 98 okay uh, so he's been a DAC member since 98. I don't know when you joined, but mm-hmm. just three black dudes in the in the Detroit Athletic Club yeah. speaking about, I want to say, like, possibly the conspiracies of the coronavirus and, like, what becomes, like, it, it's deep. You know what yep. I'm saying? Just, like, on the generations between my dad and us yep. and those conversations in that setting. Yep. You talk about institutions that ostracize black people. I mean, for so long, the DAC, I mean, mm-hmm. it was Coleman Young that said, if you don't let black members in this club, mm-hmm. this club will no longer be in Detroit. Yep. Soon after you have some black members. Yep. Yep. And I mean, it, it, it takes that kind of bold leadership um, and, and, and courageous and audacity to like, you know, call, I mean, speak truth to power. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that's disturbing to me today is that, you know, you, there's not a lot of that kind of those voices mm-hmm. in our community, yeah. particularly in Detroit. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that is okay with the status quo and okay being, uh, you know, paid a couple of dollars to be quiet. And, you know, it's really disturbing. Um, and then you see the transitioning of our leadership um, in particular, like Detroit still being the blackest city in the United States of America. Yeah. Um, but yet does not have African-American leadership um, that actually are leading. Um, that's problematic. Um, businesses, um, you know, there should be more black businesses in Detroit. Um, but you know, that's, that's something that I said, um, I'm always going to fight for that. Um, I'm fortunate to sit on the, um, economic development corporation board and we have a really good board. Um, and our board is very, very much so, um, aligned and cautious and, 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 and conscious about making sure that we make sure we have Detroiters and African-Americans involved in this kind of prosperity movement that's happening right now. And that's what makes some of that so difficult because Mm -hmm. the minute that you put the white face in the mayoral office and it's, uh, I was having a discussion with, um, with the, with someone from like a board I was leaving, like I'm in a lot of community boards. It's like the work you do kind of dick offers different opportunities. So like social awareness, community stuff, let's ask Kari if you want to join. And before I used to always question it more and turn it down. Now I'm like, "Mm, let's welcome it. Let's see what happens to engage this Mm -hmm. but as i'm leaving and we're talking about like the face of what's going on and opportunity because at one point in time it looked at this is my homie like my homeboy friend in business uh phil cooley was one of the faces where people said this is an outsider taking advantage of opportunity phil cooley kind of became the face of mike duggan and mike duggan now has become like the face of dan gilbert Hmm. and like i tell a lot of people it's like both things can be true and both things can be right like there are opportunities that I know, um, you know, that 
that certain business uh, investment and, and, and funding would just be way more comfortable giving to uh, a Dan Gilbert or a Phil Cooley than Kari Frazier or even other businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, as a child, I, you know, it's, it was just striking mm-hmm. when Dennis Archer said, you know, it's not up to me to, to give a black man a casino. And I'm like, damn. You got this many. And then Don Barton went back and got Michael Jackson to come with them. And I'm like, damn, you know, and at the time it's like, man, you, you got a, a multimillionaire person that can buy a casino. And mm-hmm. he, he just got Michael Jackson to say he's going to be in the casino with them. Give him a casino, I you mean, know, and, and like things like that can be striking. Whereas some of the other deals and the relationships, because a lot of this investment, a lot of this funding. Mm-hmm. Um that's re re i guess resurging detroit Mm -hmm. on two ways one it's definitely a lot of economic interest from the outside coming in Mm -hmm. but a lot of that economic interest from the outside coming in to me they're leveraging poverty so they're using cdfis hud funding um government funding uh government granting uh subsidizing all types of quote-unquote risk by doing business in a place uh, filled with poverty, mm-hmm. which is adjacent to black people, to basically start their business investment. So it's like they're leveraging the poverty to build business that never would have had interest to actually do business with the people that live there in the first place. And when you study history, I mean, that's that's a reoccurring thing. And that's what, you know, I guess what we call uh, gentrification. That's exactly what happens is to figure out how do you distress a community so much so that, you know, certain people, a, a certain small group of people can come in and basically take advantage of all of the programs that um, the community never had access to. Yes. Um, and but it, but by design, no question, it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I sat and, and I'm going to just point blank say it, it was one of the weirdest things ever. I sat in uh, and many people know this story. Uh, the the man I, I want to say, is it the Ashley uh, whole apartment building? It's mm-hmm. it's right there on uh, it's Martin Luther King, King. Yeah. And in Woodward. Mm hmm. And um, and it was a long presentation by the guy in the mayor's office and Alexis Wiley that works with Mike Duggan that said, you know, this company, uh, you you can age out like uh, if if people are familiar, like a, 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 an apartment building can say, hey, I want to access HUD funding to basically subsidize the rent and, and rent control the people that live in this place to stay in this place. So because I'm going to let basically poor people live here, quote unquote, government, can you give me some tax abatements? Mm-hmm. The government says, OK, OK, but you need to um, we can stick you in this program for 25 years. Year 24 comes up. A lot of people start, you know, rent starts raising. You know, it's going to be like uh, <laughs> rented use. You know, one person's living next door to another person. That's three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And then year 25 happens. Mm-hmm. All the rents change. Year 26 happens. We're going to sell it to this other company for whatever. That company wants to kick everybody out. Mm-hmm. And and in this presentation, and I'm like, okay, I understand some of this stuff already. They said, the company that wanted to do this, we said, this is unfair and this is wrong. So the next time they met with the mayor, we told them, this is how you meet. And I'm thinking to myself, how did they even get a next time to meet with them? You know? Yeah. But these are, this is... And then in some ways I'm I'm asking myself, and this is tough because some of these bad deals, Mm -hmm. some of the predatory practices that have been pervasive in cities like Detroit and not just Detroit, but Detroit, Jackson, Mississippi, Cleveland, Mm -hmm. Chicago, Flint have existed for so long. Yep. Um, What role now that as you're in entrepreneurship and consulting, uh, do, do, do 
should how should black entrepreneurs look at engaging in some of this programming yep. that has been disproportionately unfair and unjust for us? So I, I'm a I'm a student of uh, the great uh, Claude Anderson, Dr. Claude ah, Anderson, black labor, white wealth. Yeah. And so, you know, when he talks about collective group economics. Like, you know, the, the longer I live, the more I realize that the only people that can save us and help us is us. Mm-hmm. And so being able I'm doing a lot of work in Tulsa, Oklahoma, around the whole black Wall Street. And they're mm. getting ready to um, commemorate the centennial next year of the massacre, mm. not the riots. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, this is the, and growing up in school, they said the black Wall Street riots. It wasn't a riot. It was a massacre um, yeah. from white folks, you know, coming into a black community, killing first time, people, innocent. Black first people. time a bomb was used on American soil. Yep. 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 By, by terrorists. And let's call it what it is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Dr. Claude Anderson talked about collective economics. And so as an entrepreneur, I'm very intentional and and I'm very focused on empowering, um, educating and enlightening young people and even older people to understand that we have to support each other. We have to work with each other. We have to have a plan. We have to have a strategy, an economic plan and a political plan. And quite honestly, being very focused on that single as a single mission. And so for me, when it comes to politics, I've even changed the way I even deal with politics. I can care less if you're a Dem or a Republican. What is your agenda um, and how are you going to help with with the vision that we have in the ask, like having specific ask for our community and not really worried about any other community? Like, what are you going to do for our community um, and, and how are you going to partner with us and what have you done? Because a lot of times people sit and tell you all the stuff that you're going to do, then they get in the office and they have amnesia. So I want having politi- having a having a plan, having an agenda and being succinct, um, because one thing that you can't um, neglect is the, is the power of the people. And when we mobilize and we're organized um, and we come as a collective voice and a collective unit, we're unstoppable. And then the next thing is the economic plan. I mean, that's something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, I mean, teaching our young people the importance of all the different elements from financial literacy to uh, business ownership and understanding the difference between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. I mean, a lot of people use this word entrepreneur. I'm actually writing a book about this right now. That's um, deep. Yeah. But I mean, really just, to bring you back. Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah, so I'll let you know. It's, it's supposed to be August uh, okay. release, but I'll, I'll, okay. um, I'll let you know. But but then also changing the mindset of what entrepreneurship is. Right. Um, I believe in this whole concept of making dollars while making change. And that's actually what the book title is going to be. Mm. Um, but, you know, not just being a business owner or self-employed or whatever it is. And, and, and so let me be very clear, because I, I love Dame Dash. One of the things Dame Dash said, hustling for your last name, not your first. Um, but then also, um, you know, he, he, he kind of took some flag by saying, you know, who, why would you get a job and you, have, you, know, you should be your own boss? Um, I'm not knocking anyone to have jobs. I think there's a place for that for everyone. I think there we need employees, um, but we also need to understand multiple streams. We also need to understand that well, you can hunt, you can you can work for someone from nine to five. But then after, five, you know, after, you know, you get off of work, you need to figure out what is it and how you get. You want to have a you want to be in a place where you can actually control your own destiny. And so you need to hustle for your last name after five o'clock and don't be as dependent. I mean, that's not how you really build real wealth working for someone or, or even being a CEO of a, of a company that you can easily get fired over overnight. Yeah. But having ownership and having multiple streams because all of your businesses are not going like work. No. You know, so like, I mean, when I started this uh, solar water, I've been self-funding it up to this point. I haven't made any money. Mm-hmm. I haven't made any money. And so the thing is, I never want to be in a place where I can't pursue what I believe in my purpose because of money. So my consulting company pays the bills and, you know, the cannabis company that I'm a partner in pays the bills so that I can actually do the things that matters the most. And that's, you know, making sure that um, 
clean water is have access to um, marginalized communities, in particular in African-American communities. Because if you look over the United States, you have places like Newark, Detroit, Flint, um, and, and places all throughout the South that's suffering from lead poisoning and other kind of contaminants in their water. And so one part of it is making sure that people have clean, sustainable and renewable water. Another part is we're teaching and training people curriculum around water technology in K through 12. Mm. And mm. so we also, you know, helping them to understand the business. My, all the people that work for me in Solaire, they're all like from Flint. Mm-hmm. born and raised either they live there now or and so i'm very intentional about That's the people deep. that i hire and we have talent and so we we have that and then the other part is we give a percentage of everything we make every year back to the flint water fund so for water related to help people out pay their water bills to help with water infrastructure and that's up to the foundation that we write the check to to provide but being able to think about it from a social entrepreneurship just as, as yourself is 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 one thing to be profitable, but it's to me, I look at it as a triple bottom line in everything that we do, right? We should always, we should be careful about um, how we preserve the planet, you mm-hmm. know? So you got planet, you got profit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't be in business if you're not trying to make a profit. Yeah. And then the last thing is um, um, uh, people. Yeah. And that's not even in, in, in no specific order, but people being really conscious about what we're doing to make sure that's impacting the world and community. And if we focus on that and if we spend um, a lot of our focus and energy on doing that collectively as one unit and collaborating, I mean, I think that's that's our only answer to 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 improving and enlightening and actually getting back to what Marcus Garvey used to talk about, which is Marcus Garvey is one, oh, one of my heroes. Yeah. So. I mean, the Garveyite thinking, uh, which is. I think it's it's morphed in so many ways to yep. uh, the Garveyite thinking, and I'm sure it's probably somebody hipping him to some game. But yep. w- of what we what we can grasp, yep. I was having this discussion with my dad. The Garveyite thinking empowered uh, the Nation of Islam to look at that and take some critiques into their mm-hmm. own businesses and building their organization. Yep. Which later took the Black Panthers yep. into their own organization yep. and, and their own paths and. Engaging the community, yep. which now you know, as you said, uh, black labor, white wealth. Uh, you yeah. should read that if you're if you're a black person in business, buy that book, yeah. read that book. That's that's a very great book. Also, Poweronomics is a good read as well. Uh, and it should be uh, impactful too. We're reading that right now. So I, um, a buddy, a couple of buddy, a buddies of mine actually started a marathon club, book club. Um, after Nipsey Hussle um, passed away. And so wow. there's different cities that's doing that. And so um, they reached out to me and said, hey, man, can you get some folks together and start doing it? We actually, this month, we're reading Poweronomics. Most mm-hmm. of us read it before, but it's like refreshing. It can never, there's so much, so many gems and, in that book. And I mean, many books, when they touch you, uh, a book I often reread is Autobiography of Malcolm X. Yeah. Uh, today is, uh, as we know, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as they say, Malcolm X, I mean, it, I'm fortunate, you know, this is the day he was assassinated. Yeah. Um, but uh, autobiography of Malcolm X is one, and there's yeah. a couple others. But yeah, picking up a book and rereading it as you go through different things in life, especially if it touches you emotionally, like that book to me, it's like it's more perspective of the transformation of a man that he made. No question, powerful brother. Like um, you know, it's always disheartening when you see um, our true leaders, those that I feel that was truly called. I mean, it's it's a special. I can't imagine being a, a Malcolm X and a, a Marcus Garvey and a Martin Luther King mm-hmm. um, during that time or even today. Um, it's you, you. It's a thankless job. I mean, and yeah. the reality is, it's it's the they they did it for the love of the people. Yeah. Even though they weren't loved by a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the people that was either following or opposed yeah. to them it's, that looked like it's them. It's much. It's much, especially uh, a lot of people 
recognize the people that oppose oh no question malcolm x but as i always tell people it's a lot of revisionist history about martin luther king it yeah. was so yeah. important for young people and a couple of pastors yep. um you know shout out cl franklin yeah but very few i mean even here in the city of detroit the mm-hmm. the, the detroit naacp didn't want to walk with walk with him yep. uh you know uh the unions really wouldn't support him Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor Romney eventually got on board, but it was like one of the the back to you say the will of the people right. encouraged it. Where it was like, okay, if I don't jump on board, yeah, and really, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to something as recent as 2008. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama's presidency was not supported by the Democratic Party. Nope, a lot of black folks weren't supporting, or a lot of older institutions right. weren't <clears throat> supporting of him. Mm-hmm. You know, I got kicked out of a meeting one time because I was like, they were like, we, what do we know about him? I'm like, so we're, we're actually going to question yeah. whether we're going to vote for Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. Like, I mean, what am I? I got kicked out the group for that. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's deep, man. And it's it, it, a lot of this stuff goes back to that's why for me, I take my job very serious as a father. Um, yeah. I take it very serious. I take that ser- more serious than any other thing, any business or mm. any other things I'm involved in globally um, mm. is because. I, I'm not expecting or I, I don't expect the schools that they attend. I don't wow. care if it's the best schools to teach them, you know, these types of things. And this is a lot of consciousness. And it's like really teaching kids how to think for themselves, how to go and, and find and research. And the thing is, now with technology, you can really find out anything you need. You don't have to go to a library, which we still do. I still take my, my daughters to the library so they can understand the importance. I love reading books. I'm, I'm, I'm a big thumb through it just because yep. I love technology and I just know how easy this stuff can be changed. Yep. I mean, I could, you know, through edits, even if it's a, a slight edit, like yep. context, the difference between the and a can, yep. can, can change no question. the way a person perceives it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, um, you know, uh, as they're going back and they're, they're telling you they're changing like Huckleberry Finn, you know, it's no yeah. longer nigger Jim or whatever. Yep. But, that's the books they're telling you that are changed, but right. I mean, it, you ain't no telling what's happening on your on your Kindle. If you're yeah. really getting, um, I don't know what book you want to read. It could be, you know, uh, you know. That's why prisons don't allow certain books because yep. some information they don't want in the book. Yep. I, I mean, mean, you know. I mean, so my my daughters, you know, as we're celebrating Black History Month, I mean, for for at least from my house, Black History Month is every every day. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm very intentional, even like from the dolls that they play with, like I. You know, I'm very specific about the dolls. I let my mm. because my daughter asked me one time, like, Daddy, why are we only why can we only play with black and brown dolls? I was like, well, babe, one, you should. I want you to love who you are. Yeah. Um, everything that you do is a reflection of who you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And so from the person who you serve, if you believe it, whatever you believe in from a faith base or um, mm-hmm. from the books that they read, like that's beauty. Mm-hmm. And I want you to understand. I want you to understand because in the world, the schools that they attend now is predominantly white mm-hmm. and so I, I sense of self is so important to me because i had i was fortunate in flint to actually see that to see greatness um good bad and ugly but like i went to i was fortunate to get a scholarship to go to cranbrook um as a boarding student because mm. what through financial aid and then obviously through academics too but for me it was going to cranbrook wasn't wasn't a bad thing because i was very comfortable in my skin Mm-hmm. I had a sense of confidence that I know I noticed that some of the other black folks that came was trying to, you know, I was like, are you black or white? Like, yeah. and so, I mean, my thing is I want my daughters to really understand the power that they possess, but then also to, like I said, be independent thinkers and doers and, 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 and not follow the trends. But then black history starts back during, we're talking about 
um, Kush, and we, I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking about Dope you know Timbuktu and yeah, 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 Kemet, and you know that's yeah. like that's what my daughter's like. We to her talking about like, I mean, our conversations are a little bit different. And I want them to ask a lot of questions, but I also want them to actually search and look for themselves because I'm like I'm not, I don't give you all the answers. You have access to you can you can find some of this right but don't believe everything i say especially don't believe like everything (laughs) with your teachers your teachers yeah Yeah. don't Um, don't you can you can get this knowledge and that's where like coming up from an african-centered school a lot of this perspective of some of the things that some of my friends run and tell me now it's like did you know this did you know that i was like man i was hearing that back in you know the classes you you know you're called the dogons you're not you're not in the third grade you're you're in the kushites you know what i'm saying yeah were you were you what uh school aisha shule aisha shule uh mommy Monty humphrey and and her vision and now through doing detroit is different and i love these talks because i'm Mm -hmm. finding out more and the practicality of it and then as we talk even about the practicality of it what did what did family look like for you that just that transition from just um um, and I guess I'm jumping a big a big hurdle. But Mayor Kilpatrick, mm-hmm. after everything happened with the administration, mm-hmm. um, which was a strategic attack. Oh, yeah. And, and this kind of goes back to black history. As far as I'm concerned, the FBI establishes a target and yep. then drills down. Yep. And uh, we know just through Charlie Beckham that Coleman Young had the biggest FBI file of any person at yep. the time. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine that Mayor Kilpatrick's FBI file was may have started when he was in, as a state representative. But yep. with that being said, mm-hmm. <clears throat> what was happening after after Mayor Kilpatrick's administration? Where, where were you? Yeah, so I, I, I ended up resigning the day that he resigned. I remember, I'll never forget that. It was a, like September 8th, I believe, of uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember coming in and I know he was I knew that there was people trying to get him to, to step down and things like that. But he was like, we're going to fight. And he was like, I'm not stepping down because the reality is he, he was not fortunate how a lot of like white politicians are where he can walk away. And, you know, he, he didn't have no trust fund. He didn't have money in the bank. He was a um, well, um, he so he uh, I remember him telling me that and he was like, I'm going to resign. I said, so really? Like, I, I just didn't see it coming. And so I was like, well, I'm I'm resigning too because i can't work for another like i knew who the next yeah. person was going to be ken cockrell i was like i mean i couldn't work for him like i'm real big on principles and i'm a, i was loyal i'm, yeah. a, I'm always loyal mm-hmm. um and there was some What's people jumping in you oh yeah that so, gang in you <laughs> yeah yeah so that was the first time in my life that i didn't have a plan because i didn't think that that was ever going to happen that was going to happen so i remember putting in my resignation and because i didn't want to get fired i was like i ain't never been fired in my life i'm not about to get fired now yeah exactly. um put in the resignation definitely yeah. So I didn't know what I was gonna do. I was like, maybe I go back to DC. I mean, I was really, I was really disgusted by Detroit. Yeah. Honestly, like I was. I can imagine. I mean, it was like the way that they turned their backs, and a lot of people who like lied, you know, to save themselves mm-hmm. from going to jail on Kwame. I mean, it was a lot of stuff that I hope that one day Kwame can actually communicate that to people, um, people who he grew up with. I mean, I when I read the book that uh, shout out my brother in name and game, Kari yeah. Turner wrote. Kari, yep. Um, you can tell like it's certain spots where it's like, damn, I know he wants to go deeper and yeah. I know he wants to keep this real, but he also has a pending, you know. Yep. yep. So I'm pretty sure the part two of that book is going to be oh, yeah. an immediate read for Kari Frazier. Yeah, like yeah no question. I love Kari. He's a great writer. Yeah. Um, and good great dude. Um oh, yeah. so yeah, after that I, I ended up um George Jackson, who was the president and CEO of the DGC, called me and was like, Hey, what are you doing? I was like I have no idea. Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I was always, you know, for me, I was gonna, I was just going to take my time to figure it out. Yeah. Um, 
but he called and said, well, I want you to come work for me. I said, well, doing what? He was like, well, uh-huh. you can just make, you know, you figure, tell me, you, give me a proposal and tell me what you want to do. So mm-hmm. I went over and worked at the DGC, kind of built out their public policy as well as um, at the time they had federal appropriations. We called them earmarks. Yeah. And so I was in charge of doing that. Um, and I did that for about six months. And then a private company gave me a call. It was a defense and aerospace company uh, that was based in Detroit um, mm-hmm. called me. And was like, yo, you made some major introductions that helped us out in the defense industry because wow. of the relationships I had. He was like, why don't you come work for me? Oh. I was like, I knew nothing about manufacturing. I knew nothing yeah. about defense. He said, but you didn't know anything about most of the jobs you had in the past. But, you you know, you're a smart guy. You can figure it out. So he said, give me a number and let's go. So, you know, that was my first uh, swing of a, like a private, big, multi-billion dollar. Well, it wasn't a billion. But so it was did you come in as an employee or this this is you switching into consulting? No, I came in as an employee. So, But I, how long did it take you to be like, damn, I could have did this as a consultant? Well, so let me tell you, I mean, I got caught in that, 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 that. Uh, the facade of corporate life. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, it was, so they came in, had a, had a nice salary, right? Yeah. And I had a nice commission, but then I had a corporate card too. So I had an unlimited corporate card. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were flying private jets and everything. So I was, I was like, man, this is, you know, yeah. party and having, and so I was paid to basically entertain folks to help people. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. It was it was a great experience. And, yeah, the stories and they like, say about it's like he's a lobbyist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. And it was that we had a lot of fun. We got a lot of stuff done. I made them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and in retrospect, I was like, man, I wasn't really making any money during that time. Um, and so I did that for about four. I think that was the longest job I've ever had. I probably did it for four years, and then sequester hit, which the defense um, the dis- defense spending got cut. Mm-hmm. That was like 45% of our business. And so wow. I'm a finance guy. So I saw, I sat, I was a, saw the writings on the wall. Yeah. I was on our senior management team. So I, every month I saw how we were losing a million dollars every day. Um, and so I was like, okay, I need to, I need to like make, make an move. exit. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't start, I went over to Pete Carmanos and, um, and I said, Hey man, I got a, a business uh, value proposition for you. So I was like, y'all should be doing more stuff in the public space because the work that we were doing, um, when I was working with the other company, um, and so he was like, "Well, why don't you why don't you run that?" He said, "Why don't you run our public sector sales business?" And so <clears throat> he was like, "And then I also have a, co- a company called Covacent that's getting ready to go public." And he was like, "I want you to be a part because I was a part of the deal team for the other company when they got bought by a bigger yeah. multi billion dollar company called Tower." Yeah. And so he was like, "Why don't you do that?" So I helped put together the deal structure for that, and then I was running our public sector sales and did that. I was having a good time. It was a strong team that we built. And then, but even we, in that, even in that deal, mm-hmm. that was doing business. Like you, yeah. you, you're you're selling. You know what I'm saying? It, it's you got a proposition, yep. and then you sold. Yep. So you're venturing into this space slowly but surely. Yeah, I've never had. It's, I'm, this is a blessing. I've never had a job that I interview for. Hmm. I always had jobs that I created. Wow. And for me, that's just all. I've been an entrepreneur since I was eight. And or, that's that's part of that feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when, when I was eight, I, I mean, I, was a, I had a paper route and I was like uh-huh. the top sell like paper route. I, it got to the point where I had different like blocks that mm-hmm. they started giving me. And so I would like hire younger kids because I didn't like waking up in the morning and rolling up the, uh, Who the newspapers. Does? Who does? So I would hire them and give yes. them like a percentage. And I, I mean, uh-huh. I had a natural nat of that. I had a t-shirt business. I had a printing company. I had a lot of different businesses going up, uh, growing up mm-hmm. um, because I couldn't sell drugs, but I had I had a vending machine. I used to go wow. to Sam's and like, you know, buy all my stuff. Yeah. Cause I don't even know if Costco was out at that time. But it filled its machine. Yeah. And make money. But as I as I was older, like I always wanted to do things that I enjoyed. So like all of the jobs that I had was either someone asked me, like, for instance, the mayor yeah. and then the other CEO asked me to come and work for him. But the other folks 
I literally just said, hey, this is where I think I could bring value. And they were like, OK, come wow. in and, and execute. So I was, I was I was fortunate for that. But then when we took the company public, um, the leadership changed. They hired they fired the CEO who brought me in, who I had a really good relationship. I reported directly to. And then there was these guys from Silicon Valley came and they, were, they really did not like Detroit. Yeah. And, you know, I was also over external affairs, too. So the stuff that we used to do from a social, you know, like yeah. writing checks for community projects and engagement. They were like, yeah, we ain't doing none of that stuff. We just want to focus on business. Yeah. I was like, I can't. I can't deal with this. I was like, if you don't have a social mission, you and then the morale was bad. I said, you know what? I'm leaving. So I, I ended up like taking my buyout, walking away. Didn't have any, mm-hmm. one client. I didn't have anything set up. That was another first because I was like, I always preach you got to have make sure before you quit your job, make sure you have something in in line. So I mean, I literally started from nothing and grind, man. That first six to eight months was rough. Mm-hmm. You know, of all the folks that I mean, I used to, I was the top seller in the business at at, at the uh, Covis at the mm-hmm. time, but when I was out on my own shingle, I wouldn't get return phone calls. Yeah. And I was like, man, I, like. It was like that Dave Chappelle skit. Where yeah. He, where he no longer had the show and he was calling him like, I'm scuba diving with Aquaman. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But no, it was the best thing ever happened. It was scary. But, um, you know, I was fortunate to, um, like I said, for me, I work best when everything is against me. And I think that's part of the reason why I went to FAMU. I could have went to Michigan State in Michigan and, you know, I got accepted to those schools. But I was like, I know I will get comfortable. And that's the that's to me the worst thing that ever happened is me getting comfortable. So I always make myself uncomfortable. Okay. That's why I like the companies and the ventures that I'm in now. It's I ain't know anything about water. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a high. It's a very expensive business. I mean to get into it. And so yeah. every day, every night. I mean, this is the thing that keeps me up. And and, and I stay up working um, because one, I realize it's a greater purpose and it's bigger than me. Um, and I'm excited about some things I'm gonna be announcing pretty soon around this. Okay. Um, we're gonna revolutionize how we consume water mm-hmm. um, and how we think about water. And I ain't talking about bottled water. Okay. Um, I'm talking about the way we get our water and how we utilize technology to uh, to manifest uh, things. And and it's it's I'm super excited, man. It's I'm I'm really excited. I'm I'm definitely uh, you know this welcome forum, and I want to hear more. I want yeah. I want to see more a, as that grows. Mm-hmm. So as all of this venture into entrepreneurship is starting, mm-hmm. what's happening with your family? When do your daughters? When when does when, when does the family life begin? Yeah, so the family and is life, that happening concurrent? Nah, so um, let's see. So I ended up getting married when I was actually. So I started dating um, Verica. <laughs> I started dating her right after I left the administration mm-hmm. and she was with me like she was like I got like ride with me because I made mean, at the time I didn't really trust people I didn't really want to be around people because you know I was even then associated it was like oh he's a part of that Kwame thing like yeah, we don't really look at like I say it was a pervasive narrative that you know well for me on the outside I didn't have anything associated it was like see that's what happened when you put a black man in yeah, control yeah and then if you were connected it was like so what were you stealing exactly and yeah, for the record my name was never on any fbi uh documents um i mean i literally i put my head down and was just working hard i never the stuff that was happening after i saw the text message and stuff i was like when did this stuff happen mm-hmm. i was literally with the mayor all the time mm-hmm. um and so it was very interesting and then just to see um yeah so that's a whole nother thing but um I think I lost my train of thought. It was more so the family. Like, yeah. so oh, as yeah. that's running in, you said she was with you mm-hmm. through just this whole, like, uh, I guess, kind of, you know, public shaming, hating, yeah. uh, just a time where, you know, people even just sometimes even that they do care, but yeah. just their their nature in it calling you. You yeah. okay? Yeah. How you doing? What yeah. you going to do? You know? I mean, it's it's one of those things where, man, I, in my life, when I, when I really reflect back and now because I'm writing a lot, um, 
I'm very reflective. I'm actually just just about to publish a biopic of my parents too. I'm so happy wow. about that. Um, just so I make sure that, that their legacy and and, and exactly. their life is yeah. Because I wanted them to write a book, but my parents not gonna sit down and write a book. Um, so what I did is I'm gonna do a whole Hilarious. like a whole like amazing. I mean, I hired a really good production production team to do the whole biopic. Okay. And anyway, so yeah, so the family the I started dating and then I ended up getting married in 2011. Okay. 2011. Um. And then actually started having kids. Okay. Um, so my first daughter was born, uh, like, well, she she was birthed six months of marriage. Um, mm-hmm. So she's seven. I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so all girls. And, uh, you know, it's you know when I see what happened with, with Kobe Bryant, yeah. it was something that really hit me. Beyond the fact that I love Kobe as a person and as an athlete, but him, I mean, a girl, I'm a girl dad. Like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, my dad told me this when I was a kid. I was like, no, I'm going to have boys. Like, I'm going to have boys. I would never do it over again. I love girls. My daughters are everything to me. Mm-hmm. They've they they brought out. They made me a better man. They made me a better father. Um, they keep me honest, and um, it's just like the best thing going home and seeing them. Like all of the crap that I go through all day as you know, as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You have. I mean, beginning of this week was rough. Yeah. But you know, it, I had a strong finish today. But when I go home tonight, like Fridays are like family night, so that's we cool. like usually order pizza and watch movies, and that's like okay. our thing. Like I don't compromise. Like, so I'm one a, second, time on. Let me ask you this because mm-hmm. that that actually, when I think about rest in peace, my mom. When I think Love about mom, some man. of uh, some of the uh, <laughs> some of the things where my mom would go, yeah. Because just even with my nephew, like my mom would sit through a lot of horrible movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, like she, you know, like that Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. She had to like sit through that. And I'm like, like, I can't sit through that now. Like, damn, why was I watching this? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the, 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 what was that? That George the Duck. Like, you know, my dad took us as kids. My dad took me and my sister Dar to one movie. Uh It was the DuckTales movie. And my dad was like. Your mama gonna have to start taking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So who picks movies on movies night? That's they do. The girls pick it. Like and you and, just sit and, and you pr- and you. Man, a lot of the stuff I'm like, oh man, it's so you just like, hey, let's do it. But Snowfall it, five. It's a moment where, and I try, and and I, as they're getting older, I'm spending way more time with them now. We uh, have daddy daughter dates like once yeah. a week. That's like mandatory. And That's then deep. I try to, I'm getting to a point where I'm trying to do it like individually because I'm understanding now that they want their own time with daddy and not uh, like the group. Yeah. Um, but no, we um like I don't know what we're gonna watch tonight, but uh, yeah, the girls are uh man, they're they're the best thing that ever happened, man. Like. I mean, I've never had a boy. I don't even want a boy. Like everybody's like, you want to try for a boy? I'm like, nah. I tried the second time for a boy. Mm-hmm. After that, I was like, nah, I'm good. I know how to raise girls. Yeah. And you know, anybody that knows me, well, know more I'm, power to you, my brother. Yeah. And then rest again, rest in peace to your, your moms. I love your mom. Like she was such a blessing, man. Um, I you know, I got a chance to work with her. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, she was like my, our mama. Like she was she was mom. Like I mm-hmm. called her mama, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I love her so much. And so I, I'm you know yeah, definitely mom, lifting up love. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, my mom had that spirit, that energy. Sometimes yep. when I go into this, it's like you can only imagine. Yep. Like thinking through, and yep. this, and that's what's so special about this because this was the home she grew up in, my grandmother's home. Oh wow! And this was the last project we did together. So oh, it's like man, keeping this that. going. Okay. She was proud because like I, boy, oh boy, I I get on her nerves sometimes. Yeah. But we were more connected in our passing through this project and just interconnecting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yep. like. uh just unique unique mm-hmm. like anybody that walks in the uh podcast studio you'll see like this frame of like the story of this house mm-hmm. and my mom was just big on like we should edit this we should edit that we should edit this we should wow. edit that the last thing we did together before her passing was working on that so and it took us lord knows it's only 
a letter, but yeah. you know how it is when yeah. moms are touching up stuff. Yep. I think it took us three and a half hours to write that letter. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And yeah. I'm thinking like, yo, ma, I just want to go get some food now. Yeah. Like, you can yeah, just yeah. write it. And she's like, nah, you're going to write it. So yep. going back over like exactly how to frame, you yep. know, my uh, grandfather's time in service of World War II and stuff like that. Wow. Just real, real particular about mm-hmm. certain things. And, uh, and definitely when she spoke of the Kilpatrick administration, one of the things that she kept saying was I can't believe how he's going through all this media scrutiny and coming to work like it yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah, I I couldn't either. I mean, it, it started it started weighing in on me, and it like because I was with him, I saw and, and one thing I, because I was with him so much, I gained. I used to work for him when he was a state representative, um, when mm-hmm. he was a minority whip. That was my first experience with him. He became like the guy who I idolized to my big brother to like a guy who like we mutually had respect for. It was the point where he used to start asking me for thoughts and for uh-huh. opinions, which before. You know, I was just like, you're the young dude. I'm the young dude. Like, go do this. Go do, you know, and, you know, I took on a lot of that stuff. Like, I can literally feel and we were so connected. I knew when he had a bad day. I knew when he wasn't feeling he wanted to get out of this meeting. We were so connected. I knew on what day what he was feeling like eating based upon the way he's dressed. I mean, we were connected, man. And it's taco day. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) I mean, I know I know how he like his tacos. You know what I'm saying? Um, And so, you know, part of it was I was very protective of him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a fighter. And my thing is, I ain't never scared of no fight. Like, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm not a big dude, but I used to fight a lot when I was younger. And to this day, like when people when you mess around with somebody who I care about, like you better be ready to fight. And yeah. I am I guarantee you, you may win a couple of times, but I'm going to win all the time. And that's the- what's unique about as my dad even talks about uh, the, the edge he has in business. Yep. The battlefield of business is a different type of battlefield. No question. Because. um even in entrepreneurship, even sitting here now, it's like yeah. in the, this whole interview, mm-hmm. my friend Candace has been here and our journey in entrepreneurship. And when she was making the leap, one of the things that I said, like full time, like not no employment, like just no strings attached entrepreneurship. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's so unique because the battlefield is different, but it's still a battlefield. I, I submit, you know, I was telling some some of the people I know that work like yeah I may submit like seven proposals mm-hmm. and then people I know you know will be like hey I'm gonna introduce you to somebody and then mm-hmm. you meet them mm-hmm. you submit a proposal you meet and they're like oh so what's gonna happen I'm like I may not get that into business till three four years from now Definitely. but I gotta keep working yep and really I almost have to have a a a a, a tenacious attitude where mm-hmm. I can get rejected. 35 times i'm looking at it like probability and statistics yeah, i need to submit more game. proposals yep. to get more money mm-hmm. and then make better contacts yep you know and and, and just that dance yep. where you can really feel like what in the hell is going on because yep. nobody's responding to any of these proposals and, and and i don't know if you do this but one of the things that i've learned over the years is like because i mean the same way like on the consultant side you know people are like oh, yeah. can you send me a proposal but what i do is for folks that say that a lot of times it's people say, I can't afford you. That's what I end up coming yeah. to. But then other folks are like, well, no, we're not really, we're not going in that direction. So I always get feedback. Like, what is it about the proposal that I can change and improve? Because to me, like always continuously learning and improving. Just staying in the mix. Yeah. Exactly. And so there are certain things that I've tweaked about the way I even pitch my proposal. Um, and it's mm-hmm. got to a point where like, sometimes I just know that I'm not going to submit a proposal because I'm like, they not. Because my thing, my question is, what's your, but like, this is what, this is what I cost. This is the, yeah. what is your budget? Can you spend today? When do you plan on? And if they're like, well, we don't really know what I said. Well, when you ready to like spend, let me know because yeah, and you your learn time is valuable. In, in the gut, you learn 
some of this stuff as it goes. Yep. You know, and sometimes I was telling uh, somebody, like one of the proposals I just submitted was like, I think that's a filler. They're going to use my work. Yep. To, to exactly. determine what the protocol for the next person that's going to come in, exactly. they probably want to give the work anyway. Yep. So basically, I'm building the framework for them. Yep. But what I st- I mean, I keep so much data and records now mm-hmm. that it's like eventually this won't work, but somebody's going to buy this proposal and yep. then I'm going to be able to tweak it just like right. an attorney with contracts and say, I got you. This is how I do a documentary. Yep. They didn't buy, but it's going to turn into some money. Exactly. That, I mean, that's kind of and I know that's a weird way of thinking, yep. but that's the only way that I can, you know. I can look at this stuff logically. Yeah, no question. It, you're you're living on a little bit of sanity mm-hmm. when you are saying to yourself, um, my dad says, I've never been at a point in business. And my dad's been an entrepreneur now my whole life. Mm-hmm. He's never been at a point in business where he can see 60 days out where money's coming from. Mm-hmm. But my whole life, it was like when we were younger, it'd be maybe 10 days out. Yep. 10 becomes 20, 30, 40, mm-hmm. 50, 60, you know, and it, and it flows. So yep. just measuring that whole like, you know, what's what, you know, in my quality of life, you know, like what can I control? How can I budget better? Yep. You know, what expenses can I cut? How can I cut expenses? Do I use this credit card? Do I not use this credit card? Mm-hmm. All of this stuff is, you know, this is what you're juggling when you're an entrepreneur. No question. Yeah. And in a family dynamic, that's a whole nother level of oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. So at, if any, at, at the least, it's super motivating. Yeah. <laughs> because the thing is, like. If it was just me, I like for me, I I can live on. I mean, I was poor growing up. Mm-hmm. I know how it is, I, and that's the good thing. I always tell people, at least for me, um, and it's not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. Let me be very clear. I'm not promoting being poor mm-hmm. because um, I don't think that we, especially us as African Americans, I don't think we is is not in our DNA to be poor. Mm-hmm. Now there are certain. And there's special situations where some people are physically and mentally unable to have jobs and things like that. But I mean, if you get if you get if you can do the basic reading and writing and you have, I mean, like I said, work ethic, which I learned from my dad, like we, we're not made to be poor. Like mm-hmm. we just got to figure out how to make it happen. And that's where I feel like you don't learn that kind of stuff in school. They Like the things no. that they need to be teaching in school, definitely they don't, not. right? In business school. Oh, no. And business school was more like, and they bother, you know, I went to definitely PW. I'll go to, it's, it's not even just a PWI, as they say. It mm-hmm. is a predominantly white Republican institution. So it's a whole nother realm. But I like it because, you know, at Walsh, I get, you know, it sharpens my skills for for learning the theories for which they they debate. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing's better than than me and my perspective having a debate with an economist Mm -hmm. about how the how enslavement built the premise for our economy. And then they'll say, no, after World War Two did, and then you know going yeah. back and forth over that. I yeah, mean, yeah. That's a that's a classic debate with yep. any economist. I yep. think for some black people, you may feel like knocking somebody's teeth out, but yeah. I just like the the intellectual yeah. discussions. With that being said, um, it's employee school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is it's not. Is definitely they don't they don't the method of like dealing with you know um, dealing with of uh, really the sale. Now, mm-hmm. art of the sale. You'll learn more from being a door-to-door salesperson probably for like two years mm-hmm. about business. And how to conform into a system, a product, yeah. like an industrial system, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where you become a robot, essentially, and, and a disposable one. You yes. know, if they, they look at you, don't like you, or you said something wrong, like you're, you're fired in the next, and you're replaceable. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I yeah. tell people, like, I mean, I don't knock anyone that has a nine to five. But what I say is make sure you have other streams of income, passive income specifically. Like, I mean, basic things like, you know, real estate and 
Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of different things you well, can what do. I, what I usually say is make sure you're as close to the money making mechanism as possible. No question. Because when I'm thinking about cutting, even me, when I hire contractors or whatever, mm -hmm. like when I think, you know, one of my big revenue streams is video. So mm -hmm. if you connect with me on video or audio, you'll probably be around a lot. If mm -hmm. your consulting is like, you know, I do table decorations. I'm yeah. like, damn, do I need table decorations? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like in the gut. When you're thinking, that's what you're thinking. It's yeah. like, so the closer you are to the money-making mechanism, yep. you know, if you're LeBron James for the LA Lakers, mm -hmm. you're good. Yeah. If you're the, I don't know, if you're the, the community engagement person, mm -hmm. they're thinking, yeah, it's like, damn, I'm a, I mean, do we really need to engage yeah. the community? Can yeah. we just have LeBron say, yeah. I love you, LA? <laughs> and I mean, I always look at entrepreneurship or business ownership as just being problem solvers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, when I look back, you know, when I was younger, all of the businesses I had were a solution to problems. The mm -hmm. reason why I started a vending machine is because they took the vending machines out of our school. Wow. Oh, actually what happened was this. So they took the vending machines out of our school. But then I was like, okay, well then I started going to Sam's and buying like candy. And candy. you were just like the candy guy with the book bag. I candy. had it with my book bag. Yeah. Or, you know, when the t-shirts, like people wanted like city, like citywide t-shirts and things mm -hmm. like that. Nobody was doing it. I, was, I had a guy who made t-shirts for like two or three dollars. You know, I put a markup on it, selling them for fifteen, twenty dollars. I mean, I was making in in like elementary, middle school. I was making like three hundred dollars a week. Yeah, and that off of is, like all of my businesses that I was doing. That is great money. That was mm -hmm. that, that's more money than some of your friends that were selling drugs. Even because yeah. oftentimes that's that's one of the things I definitely, as a person that studies financing and just how money goes, mm -hmm. drug dealers are not making the money that rappers claim that drug dealers yeah, are making. Yeah, even like though it's a belief. One. Yeah, it's, that, it's, yeah. I mean, it's some. Up. But let's put it like that. But that's any business. Like yeah. the the probability of you becoming, you know. Mm -hmm. The story of that is yeah. a higher probability of you doing any business, you know, yeah. being a guy that makes pallets and sells them to trucking companies. And the longevity of it is not you don't have really no longevity because, I mean, you can get caught any day. I mean, I don't I don't know any person that sold drugs for more than like two or three years for real, for real and never got caught in, in jail. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. so that's what I always tell my friends. And I tell a lot of like my my friends that are like in well. I guess most of my friends are retiring from professional sports now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when my best friend, when when he went to the NFL, one of the things I told him, I said, you need to get a financial advisor. He's like, bro, I don't make enough money. I was like, man, you're making league minimum. What do you mean you don't make enough money? I was like, so it's just that whole education piece. And so, like, now, you know, he graduated. I mean, he, you know, he left. Um, but, I mean, he, he still say today, like, man, I wish I would have been better with my money and investing and things like that. He was in the league for, like, seven or eight years, uh, oh, making a million dollars a year. Like, he's making 1.5. I'm, I'm, you, you're making me think about uh, just a straight up regular podcast with you right now because we're getting into uh, just due to the idea. So when we when you speak about poverty mm -hmm. and, and the idea of scarcity, yep. and now I'm getting into some of the the science of like black economics, real some Claude oh, yeah. Anderson, some George Young. Yeah. Uh, so like our propensity to spend is extremely high. Oh yeah. It, because we're we're looking to mask our hysteria, mm -hmm. you know, our post-traumatic stress disorder through what, what they call it, I guess, like, uh, you know, some people will say uh, retail therapy, mm -hmm. but like, it's like consumption. So like yep. the, the you know, Jay-Z even had a post about it one time. It's yep. like, you know, I'm, I'm in this picture and I have the least amount of jewelry on, mm -hmm. but I'm the person with the most amount of money. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because, yeah. but at one point in time, he had the most amount of jewelry on to try to validate mm -hmm his confidence who yeah. he was as a person so like some of that i think is is our propensity to spend too yeah you, you know what i mean like 
and, and where that comes from from that mind of scarcity of like damn you know it come and go yep you know and that's actually one of the chapters in my book um you know changing the mindset of that consumer mindset of being yeah. producers like i mean we the thing is we make everything hot like mm-hmm. our culture we make everything hot you name you name it hip-hop the can i mean that's that's primarily the reason why i got into the cannabis business i don't even really that's not really my thing i don't really like smoke or anything like that but I got into it because I started seeing trends of a lot of African-Americans um, that are getting bought out. That's getting kicked out. The system is like really not in, in, in its uh, favor. It's definitely. And then it's a high. I mean, you got to have a lot of money on hand. I mean, really, the amount of if people know more about the laws is my dad. And this is one of the right. things I'm partnering with my dad on as yep. far as like how the accounting will be delivered. Yep. First off, the accounting is very tough and it's mm-hmm. very strenuous. Oh, yeah. But also the, the cash reserves you need to have and yep. not being able to bank this money yep. and how you can take this money. You you basically like it ostracizes not just a lot of black businesses. It almost ostracizes any independent business because yep. you almost need cash reserve. You need millions of dollars in cash reserves just to yeah. think about entering the game. Exactly. How it exists. Also, it's like one for one. You can't do uh, you need to do accrual based accounting. I'm getting real yeah. deep into this. You cannot yeah. do cash based accounting, right. meaning that you can't say, you know, these are the expenses. And these expenses against the revenue mm-hmm. is how we can make our net profit. No, mm-hmm. you need to do accrual based account accounting. So you need to do piece by piece by piece by piece by piece yep. and segment down in some form of piece by piece. If not, it's a it's a rule on the IRS books where all revenue, meaning gross revenue, mm-hmm. is taxable. So mm-hmm. that means marijuana business, you made ten million dollars. It don't matter that you spent nine and a half in staffing packaging mm-hmm. location uh heat mm-hmm. <laughs> electricity guess yeah. what you're getting taxed on 10 million dollars yep so and that's the thing like so I mean, so it's very discouraging for a lot of folks and particular mm-hmm. folks that was like selling before they went to, and they went to jail yeah. so you know yeah so what i did was i I, st- I interviewed the top folks in michigan like the mm-hmm. top cannabis growers and fo- particularly those that are vertically integrated and yeah. You know, asking them about their social equity program. And wait, you got to explain vertical integration. This is we in overtime, but yeah. I, I feel like I'm in business class right now. <laughs> but we giving some game to folks. Nah, so I mean, it's essentially, um, you know, from seed to sale. I mean, people who actually take the seed and literally from processing to you know testing all it. I mean, provisioning, um, grow all the way to retail. Um, Another thing introduced to me first through Claude Anderson's Black Labor White Wealth, a vertical mm-hmm. market. Yeah. Exactly. And so like, like that's that's one of the things that I talk about in the book, too, is like making sure you want to be able to control the whole value chain. So when I came and approached them, it was it was a couple of things. One, I wanted to see how serious they was with social equity. Right. Um, what are we going to do to expunge people's records? Like, how are we going to be involved in that from a legislative standpoint? How are we going to train people? Um, how are we actually I told myself I want to have a certain percentage of the company. Um, um, with value, like value add value, a part of the value chain and not just employees. Because mm-hmm. a lot of companies are like, oh yeah, we're gonna hire people in the community. Yeah. And again, like I come from, we're I have a different mindset. I don't, yeah, I'm like, we gonna, yeah, we can do that in. I was like, that's cool, but like to me, I don't want, I'm trying to change our mindsets of being employees and being owners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have a transportation business, I wanna make sure that as an African American, you are a part of our value chain. If you have an energy company or an energy saving company, mm-hmm. I wanna make sure you are part of this value chain because you have a specific niche and need. And then also I was just like, I wanna have equity in the company. Mm-hmm. And I said, the only people, I'm gonna go out, I said, I'll raise a million dollars for you all and it's gonna be for only African American investors. So we're able to sit at we're able to sit at the table because not because we're like we got a job we own part of this company, 
And so specifically in our Detroit dispensary, our Pontiac and Flint, um, and that, that we're going to be owners of those particular dispensaries. And at the end of the day, we not, I mean, obviously we don't have a hundred percent because I mean, you got to have money to yeah, pay for all that, that right. but one, we're investors. So we're at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, we're part of the value chain. We're also going to help with folks when, you know, coming out of jail, helping them with their expungement and then providing training opportunities. But then we're doing like this young entrepreneur grow program that I'm actually kind of leading right now. Wow. So, that, so I said, I want to be an active investor. I said, I can easily come and write a check and then be, walk away. I said, I actually want a title in the company. I want to make sure I run the strategic partnerships and the social equity program. That's my project. So I want to make sure that it's going to get done because I don't, you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to write this check and then you do it and expect them to do it. I want to make sure I do it with integrity. Um, I work a lot with the, and I'm, I'm learning a lot from the, because again, I'm not, I've not been in the cannabis industry before this. Mm-hmm. So there's groups right now that are organized organically that's been doing this like since the law became when I mean, you can do it as a caregiver. And so what I'm doing is catching up. I'm sitting and listening to them in the community meetings. I mean, these are folks that nobody hear about, but these folks have been at the front line of this and yeah. the policy side. So I'm getting caught up and, and, and building with them and be like, what can we do better and try to make us, um, and we're actually going to be launching our social equity plan. We just finalized. I just finished that up. It should be hitting our um, website soon. It's Pleasantries is the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've probably seen some of the billboards on the, on the highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really creative billboards, but it's uh, if you go to enjoypleasantries.com, um, you would um you see kind of stuff that we're doing and we're we consider ourselves to be like the um i would say shinola but not necessarily shinola but the ralph Lauren of mm-hmm. cannabis okay um our you know our strands i mean we have some of the best our ceo is one of the best growers i mean anybody that knows uh our, our ceo he's he's a legendary grower so he knows what he's doing um and we're not we're not holding any punches our, we have quality quality uh cannabis that's going to help people with healing and just and also recreational but then we also have a company with the culture that is indicative of what the community is and what they want. Wow. Um, so I'm excited about that. And so that's, that's deep. That that's deep. Yeah. We're going to close there and we're going to come back eventually because I definitely have more to share and think. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one of the questions because I got the usual Detroit is different question. Yep. What was your very first car year oh, making man. model and what year did you get it? I had a Plymouth, a 1988 Plymouth Sundance, a tan, it was actually a hand-me-down. So I'm the baby. Okay. My middle brother had the car first, and it was, like, in perfect condition. Okay. But 1988, how, how do I remember that? That Yeah, and um, when I first started driving, my brother went off to college and okay. gave me his car. Okay. And I, I treated that thing. I mean, again, I came from nothing, so we always cherished everything. To this day, I got clothes that I wear that I've had for 10, 15 years, and you, you can tell that it's not like I had uh-huh. it for 10. Because my dad taught pride. Like, you, whatever you have, you don't have to have a lot of it. But take care of what you have, yeah. and so my car stayed clean. I wow. mean, you look if you look at my car outside right now, like mm-hmm. my car is clean. It's just everything that I do. And it's not about how much I pay for it; it's like how I treat it because I value that. And that's funny. Okay. I just had a lesson with my daughters about that, telling them, you know, you, you know, a lot, a lot of times their mother car is really dirty and junky, um, and I, I I get on them about that. I'm like because that like your car, your house, everything about it, your your presentation is a represent representation of who you are and your character, and so you want to make sure that you know. Yeah, you want to protect your character because um, that's everything. And so, and then appreciate everything you have because you where, ain't got to have a lot of it. Where was the first place you went when you got the ride? Ah, uh, man, where did I go? I don't remember. It might have been like McDonald's or something like that. That's okay. when, that's when I was eating fast food. Okay, uh, yeah, um, probably I can't remember. Okay, yeah. well, that's it. If people want to get in contact with you, uh, find out more about the business, yeah. uh, just get to the dispensary, whatever. How do they uh, connect? 
so I have man, I have like three or four websites, but you can um, you can I'm on, I'm on Instagram a lot. So Jonathan J O N A T H A N dot Q U A R L E S. Um, you can hit me up on Instagram. You can I might get JonathanQuarles.com, my website, which is I need to update it. But um, okay. yeah, but those are two those two areas you can definitely and I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, there we go, Jonathan. This was fun. Uh, thank you so much. It was worth the wait. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. Peace. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.